0: Well, good morning, happy Father's Day to those of you who are dads, it's good to have you and uh, uh, hopefully you're, Mavis, hello, it's good to see you, Uh, hopefully you're thankful for uh, this Sunday. Um, uh, I know Father's Day for uh, many is hard, I know for me, I I lost my dad about six, seven years ago and so Father's Day always kind of has a little bit of uh, a bitterness to it. Uh, but one of my guys on staff was, was reminding me how good of a father we have in heaven. And so not only do we celebrate you as fathers, we celebrate God, our Father, who uh, gave us salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? A um, couple things. Uh, first of all, we just want to uh, thank you for uh, being here and being mindful uh, of others and the continual kind of social distancing thing that we're trying to do and all of that. I know some of you are in the boat of what's the big deal, and, and some are fearful and what have you. Still several people are online. They're listening with you now or they're tuning in later on the on-demand service, we just want to say we're thankful for you as well and glad that you have decided to join us. also want to continue just to say thank you for your continued financial support. Uh, I know now some of you are here and you can uh, give checks, but many of you have moved online, and we are very thankful for that. And then uh, we've been doing Children's Church online, and the staff uh, and the elders are in discussion about what is it going to look like uh, for our uh, kids possibly to launch in a kids program, maybe even as early as next week. It'll open up a few seats in here, uh, and it'll it'll move some of the kids next door. So we're kind of wrestling through, do we have the personnel for that? Can we make sure we do all the cleaning and disinfecting uh, and all of that to make sure to keep your kids healthy and safe? And so I know, um, you know, there, there's a group of us that that are like, what's uh, the big deal? And I can tell you, I just want to share with you, you know, my my personal heart as a pastor, there's kind of Two major components when we think biblically about what is the church really all about. Ultimately, it's about glorifying God. It's about his glory. But there's two major components that, that most uh, either pastor or elder really gets excited about. One is evangelism. That is the heart to see people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. And I absolutely, one of the things that really makes me go is seeing people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And this is a season that has been hard because I can't just say, hey, bring all of your friends because we don't know where we're going to put all your friends so that they would come to know the Lord. But I know people are tuning in online and, and, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, but we have evangelism and then discipleship. And the discipleship is the part where we grow deeper in our relationship with God and we desire to come to know him more so. And I know those of you who are here, uh, you've taken the calculated risk to be here because you love God, you want to hear from God. And so... Uh, we're thankful for you. And uh, like I said, hopefully we'll communicate with you sooner than later on, um, on when we can do the kids' church thing. And let me just say <clears throat> uh, continually, just to communicate with you, one of the reasons why we still are taking precautions, because I've had the question asked, well, why don't you just open up more? Why don't you just allow more people to come? Uh, and, and the reason is because of that evangelism-discipleship tension. We want those who need to come and grow, come, or tune in online But at the same time, we know there's people in the community who don't know Jesus who have fear. And we want the community to know that we're with them in this struggle. And so the reality is this. If you're a critical thinker, and I pray that you are, uh, I'm starting to believe most of America is not. But if you are a critical thinker and you sit down and you have discussion with somebody, you can end up usually understanding where they're coming from, even if you disagree with them. So let me just mention one in particular that is a point of, of, of conversation, masks. So you have right now the big conversation of masks you should wear, you must wear. There are studies out there that show that I'm sure many of you are aware of that you don't need to wear them, they're not helpful. Others say that they are. Now, if you sit down and you, you think about it, you go, okay, uh, the government doesn't have a right to tell me uh, by themselves without going through legislation to put into law to wear a mask, and we should fight for our rights. That's a good argument. It's an understandable argument. The other side on the biblical side is, Uh, Other Christian friends of mine have said, I choose to wear a mask because it's a way for me to love my brother and sister, even though uh, I don't necessarily believe I need to have one. It's a way for me to serve my brother and sister in Christ. And so you may choose to wear one out of a heart of service uh, to your neighbor. But you know what? If you're critically thinking, both are true and both are good. And it actually comes down, I believe, down to the interpretation of Scripture where it begins to discuss that there are certain things that we do out of conscience. So, for instance, another one is alcohol. Some choose not to drink. Some choose uh, to do so. Some choose to watch certain movies. Some choose not to. It's not necessarily right. It's not necessarily wrong. It's an issue of conscience. Uh, and so I just want to put that out there and let you know uh, that, that you stop throwing rocks at people and you're wrong and stop arguing and stop complaining and just love people, okay? Okay. Thanks for the major feedback. That's good. All right. So as we get into the message, we've been in Exodus. So you can turn to Exodus chapter, uh, end of chapter 15. We're going to get all the way through into a little bit of 17. Uh, and then we, um, uh, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll, I'll break down some of it and, and then some of it I'll, I'll share with you. But remember now, Moses has literally been successful with the help of God by the pillar of cloud at night and by uh, cloud by the day, fire at night, to lead the people out of captivity, out of slavery from Egypt, and now they're on the longest road trip ever recorded in human history. How many of you have ever done a really long road trip? Okay, here's the next question. How many of you have done a long road trip with children? It's a whole nother game with kids, yeah? Uh, you guys are leaving tomorrow, right? And you're heading all the way to the East Coast. New Jersey. So tomorrow they're leaving here and heading all the way to New Jersey. That's a road trip. So this is going to be, listen to everything I say, it's going to be fitting for you, right? Um, My wife and I, we have family in Southern California. So at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, we travel from Northern California to Southern California with four kids in tow. And so you know, if you're on a road trip, you know there's a lot of complaining usually in the car. There's a lot of questions about, are we there yet? Uh, now, imagine doing a road trip with no food and no water with kids. Uh, I, I think the last trip we took, we were heading down south. We literally left the driveway. We're about two minutes down the road, and one of my kids says, I've got to go to the bathroom. And at that point, the, the, the whole trip, the, the tone of the trip has been set, right? And there's, it's going to be hard. This is what's happening with the children of Israel. It's literally they're moving from point A to point B. They're on a journey. The journey could have been shorter, but the people, listen carefully now, the people were not ready to totally put their lives in Yahweh's hands, in God's hands. And so God is taking them on this journey to prepare them to be the people that they need to be to eventually be the people that will give birth to the Messiah, to the Savior of the world. And so as we pick up in this, here's the title of the message. It's super fitting in this day and age. It's super fitting for me. I'm guilty of this for sure. The title of the message this morning is Grumbling or Gratitude and Growth. Grumbling or Gratitude and Growth. Because the people of Israel begin on this journey, they go on this journey, you're going to see three different occurrences all having to do with food. You're going to see they, they come across a place where there's bitter water. They complain about bitter water. They come across uh, the place where there's no food. They end up with manna and quail. And they come to a place with no water and then they receive water, and all the while they complain. So, if you're with me uh, this morning, and you're able to, would you please stand with me? Even if you're at home, go through the process to honor the Lord and His Word, and let's go through this text together. Chapter 15, first, starting in verse 23. When they came to Mara, which means bitter, uh, you remember maybe remember this from the Book of Ruth. They could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule there, and he tested them. Take note of that word. He tested them. Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation, because about two million people, the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. It's a great place to visit which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now notice, there's grumbling against Moses and there's grumbling against his elders. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots, that sounds good, and bread, To the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may, here's the word again, test them, whether they walk in my law or not. They continue to grumble. In fact, there's a distinction in the verse, chapter sixteen, if you jump down to verse eight, at the end. You'll see the commandment of the grumbling and the complaining is not against Moses as a leader or his elders, but it's actually against the Lord. There's a distinction. Then Moses said to Aaron, set the whole congregation of the people of Israel to come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Jump to verse 13. In the evening came the quail, so manna in the early part of 16, quail in the latter part of 16. Then the instructions on how to gather this manna are listed in the following verses. Then go to chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? There's the word again, Three times now, in two chapters, but the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, "Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" So Moses came to the Lord and said, "What shall I do with this people? They almost are ready to stone me." And the Lord said to Moses, "Pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock." And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, and the place was named Massa and Meribah, which literally means testing and grumbling. And so, Lord, now we trust you to do your work with your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. Okay, so three tests. Uh, really, what the, this entire passage about is God testing his people through Moses and through Moses' leadership in the wilderness In the wilderness to help them become who God wants them to be. Now, I want you to see first of all, if you remember last week, Wayne read from chapter 15. In chapter 15, Moses sings to God because of God's saving work. God had saved his people, and Moses' response was to praise God. Now, now I'm gonna share with you something that's been like really fun for me to be a part of and also really difficult in this season. Uh, In this season, I can see why certain people are better at leading their churches and better at leading our country than those who don't. I'm going to make some of those connections. Because see, the people, remember the contrast is the people are grumbling and complaining. And it's obvious that I'm going to be moving in the direction of this entire service that we should not be grumbling and we should not be complaining, but rather we should be doing what Moses is doing. So what's the first thing he he just did? He sang. He sings to God. He prays to God. That's what all of chapter 15 is about. He he, he not only sings to God, he tells everyone that everyone should sing to God. He says that we should sing about God, what describes him and who he is, and that we should sing of his glory, and we should sing of his salvation. In fact, one pastor said, every believer should sing to the Lord, not because they have a good voice, but because of what God has done for them. That's the encouragement that when we sing, you should sing. Now, we do have somewhat of a standard up here on stage, right? So this isn't, it isn't like, hey, in front, you leading, but it's you and the congregation. Let your voice be heard. And if, if, if you're really distracting people, then, you know, social distance somewhere and <laughs> sing there. But ultimately, when you're singing, you are declaring what you are thirsty for, what you long for, and what you are hungry for. That's what the rest of the passage is. Moses sings. He shows that he has a heart for God. That's one of the reasons why he's a leader in this particular position, because he has chosen to proclaim the gospel above grumbling and complaining. And he has chosen to cry out to God above making his own opinions known. He's declaring the goodness of God, he's leading people closer to God. He's a good leader because he cares about the gospel, even though he doesn't totally know what the gospel is yet. But he knows that God is the God who frees his people from slavery and bondage. And he's hungry for the Lord. Jesus actually said it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are you thirsty for the Lord? Because if you're not thirsty for God and you're thirsty for anything else, you'll have no palate for the things of Jesus. You'll have no desire. If you're constantly filling your mind with your own stuff and your own agenda rather than the agenda of God, rather than what God wants and what God desires, you'll never hunger and thirst for the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus lets us know in John chapter seven, what does he say there? He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart flow living waters. So they're in this wilderness place so that they would actually come in confrontation with God himself about what is it that you really want in your life. And what happens in testing, so the, idea, the whole idea of the wilderness, so they're in the wilderness, and the wilderness is a place of testing, and it's metaphorical, not only for being in a literal wilderness as they were, but also going through trial and tribulation. Uh, many of you have said how amazed you are at the different ways in which Exodus has applied to our daily life. I mean, think about it. Trial number one for America, COVID-19. Trial number two, racism and cops are bad. Can I just at least say this as a leader in our church, that I think it's important for me to state, uh, that there are bad people in every profession. Did you know that? There's bad pastors. I'm trying not to be one. But there are bad pastors. There's bad cops. But I know in our community, and I know by and large, there are a lot of cops who put their lives on their line, uh, put their lives on the line for us, and they serve us. And I think, I just want to say in Truckee, California, I think our department has done overall a pretty dang good job. But nonetheless, we look at the trials, that trial one has came, COVID-19, trial two. You know trial number three is coming in November. That's the election. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, 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 that it's literally, that there's these literally literal connections, but what I am saying is God drives us into wilderness, difficult t- kind of situations to reveal your heart. When you come across something you don't like, what comes out is what's inside of you. If it's anger and frustration and complaining, you're no different than the people of Israel. So I have to ask the question, in the first two trials of America so far, coming into the third trial in November, what has your response been? Has it been to sing to God? Has it been to do as Moses does, which is to cry out? Spurgeon actually says of wilderness experiences, he says, wilderness experience for the Christian are literally, he literally calls the wilderness experience the university of the Christian. He says, the wilderness experience for Christians are the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. See, God led his people into the desert that he might root out in an educational way the evils and the preferences that existed in them because they were too familiar with being in slavery with Egypt. Is it possible, my friends, that the church has become enslaved to the ways of the American way? And now God is doing something specifically for his children in the United States of America to free them from the bondage of what our culture has brought into a better and more healthy, holistic place. You know why people don't want to hear that? Because you know where that healthy, holistic place might be? Persecution. You know, the church has always thrived. Do church history. Again, we we want logical thinkers. We want people who know how to. Stu- if you don't study history, what does it do? Peace itself. If you study church history, the church has always thrived when it was in a position of persecution. You know when it has never thrived, when it was in a place of power. Just think of that for a moment. Now, I'm not going to tell you that we shouldn't have Christians in politics. We should. We should have Christians in the police force. We should. We should have Christians who are writing their mayors and their leaders, and we should vote within our conscience that we believe is biblical, but you need to understand that if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you don't long for this world, you long for the next one. You know that you have a mission in this world, and that mission is to proclaim the goodness of God, not that people would be saved out of this world, but they'd be saved in this dark world, that they would then proclaim the gospel, that there's a better world to come where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there will be no voting. They'll just be relationship face-to-face without sin and God himself. How much of that have you sung in this season? How much of that have you prayed in this season? How much time have you spent thanking God for His goodness to bring the wilderness experience in our lives so that we would actually be more like Him? See, the reason many of us are so bitter is because we're not singing, we're complaining which is the people's response, right? Here they are, they're in the wilderness. They're traveling. There's like two million of them. There's a lot of kids. So this is a lot of grumbling. Imagine the weight that is on Moses' shoulders here as a leader. God has specifically told this guy who, who, who wasn't really a Hebrew and wasn't really an Egyptian to go and lead and so here he is, and he's crying out. He does what he should. He cries out to God, and he says, God, they're complaining. They're going to kill me. They're complaining so loud. What do I do? The water's bitter. They're, they're thirsty. And so God says, okay, this is what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to take this log over here. Take this log, throw it in the water. The water's going to become sweet. It's quite amazing. To me, there's imagery of the log and the wood and the cross. And we see the cross, the salvation of God, and when we throw the cross, that is to say, when we throw the gospel into the bitter waters of our lives, God has an ability of making the bitter water of our lives sweet. For me, I, I shared this in the first uh, service. You know, I, Many of you know I grew up in a, a, a broken home, and I remember uh, as a kid, I was about 11, 12 years old, I was walking home from the junior high school at that time, and I was passing by Tacos Jalisco. But it wasn't Tacos Alisco then. It was a bar. My biological father has struggled with alcoholism his entire life. And, and there, at, that age, at that age, you know, you're 11, you're 12, you don't understand alcohol like that, in that way. You don't understand addiction in that way. You don't understand any of that kind of stuff. You just, you just know, like at that age, I just knew that I wanted a relationship with my dad. And that relationship was fractured because he wasn't always around, whether he was hungover or whatever else. As I walked by that store a man who knew my dad yelled at me and asked me if I had heard the latest news about my dad, to which I replied, no, and that's when uh, I found out on that day that my dad had shot his girlfriend in the face the night before and that he was arrested and charged with attempted murder. That building, that corner became, became a place of bitterness for me. It's a memory even today that for the most part, if I think about it, it could take me back to a negative space, a, a sad space, a depressing space. And then, and then all of a sudden, at some point, coming back to Truckee after being in San Diego and building a good relationship with Jim Mathias and Joe Casey, we're, we're now Tacos Jalisco fans. And they have, as Israel complained, you remember a little later, they complained, where's the meat pot? Did you know Jalisco's has a meat pot? Have you seen it? Does anyone know the name of it? Oh, man, the first service is more Jalisco-friendly than this service. It's literally a boiling pot of meat. And it's, every now, it's too expensive to order all the time, but every now and then I'll order it and fill up on it. It's just super good. And I sit there in fellowship with a Jim Mathias and a Joe Casey and so many other people from the church. It's become a place where I've done counseling meetings. It's been a place where we've done visionary meetings for art stuff. It's just become a place that was once bitter has now become a place that has been made sweet. You know, only God has the ability to take that which is bad and negative and turn it into something that is beautiful and sweet. Do you praise God that that, that there is a way for God to take the negativity in your life, the hardship in your life, and to start declaring the sweetness of it? I mean, this is a season where the church gets to rise up and declare the sweetness of God and the bitterness of COVID-19. You know, God transcends negativity. Did you know that? I used to have this saying that I was a pessimist, a pessimist. and I still kind of am, you know, and people say, Jesse, you're, you're always the guy with the glasses half full, and I'd say, no, 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 I'm just a realist, the glass is what the glass is, I'm a realist, and then as I was studying the gospel one day, I don't know if a pastor said it, or, or if it was something I read, or if it just occurred to me from the Holy Spirit, uh, no one gets credit for it, but God, I heard God say, the glass is not half full, and the glass is not half empty, in the gospel, the glass is always overflowing that's the gospel. It's always good and it's always beautiful. We have an opportunity to serve people. We have an opportunity to transcend negativity, an opportunity to transcend all of the pessimism and negativity. And if I'm honest with you, I'm just as guilty about complaining about everything as you are. I know for a fact some of you have complained about wearing a mask. I know it. I literally have told my wife I can't shop on Costco right now. And I love Costco. My dad gave me, that's one of the things my, my, my stepfather who raised me gave me was a love for Costco. My dad would walk down, there's those first few aisles in Costco. You guys all know those first few aisles. Those are guy aisles. Those are Father's Day aisles. You know what I'm talking about? You know the ones with the batteries and the generators? My dad would go through and every time, every time I'm not kidding you, every time he saw a new package of flashlights, he bought it. By the time he passed away, when we went through his stuff, there were literally like 20 packages of LED flashlights. I gave them all to my kids and they're all ruined now. So, <clears throat> when we praise God as Moses praised God, when we cry out to God as Moses cried out to God, God indeed will change your mindset, not your circumstance, to make the waters of your life sweet rather than bitter. Isn't that good? And then comes trial number two. The people have seen so much at this point. They've seen all of the plagues. They've seen their firstborn spared. They've seen the Red Sea open up. They've seen God work in miraculous way after miraculous way. They've now just had bitter water made sweet. Not only is it, is it just water, it's got a sweetness to it. And then they come to this place where they recognize, well, we don't have any meat. At least when we were in Egypt, we had, we had tacos Jalisco. And, and the reality is, is what they're doing, just so you know, is they have rewritten history in their minds. They were slaves. It wasn't like they had a plethora of meat. They had what was ever left over. But they're rewriting it in their history. It was better where we were at. The grass is always greener somewhere else. I've learned in counseling, nobody fixes their situation by moving. And right now there are many people, not just in our church, but in other churches in our area that I know are moving. They're getting out of California. They want out. And the result of that now is, is, is what we're being told is that those now from San Francisco are coming here because they don't want to be in San Francisco. Here's the deal. When the people of San Francisco leave from San Francisco and the people of Truckee leave Truckee, guess who goes with them? They do. Because problems are never external. Problems are always internal. You can't just change your stuff and realize, you know what? All of a sudden, it's going to be better. For crying out loud, Paul was most effective when he was in jail. You ever thought about that? We are here 2,000 years later because a man didn't stand up and argue and complain about his life, but he was willing to say, okay, I'm in jail. Okay, all right, where's the prison guards? You're in my life for a reason. Come here. I got to share the gospel with you. Let's sing together. Let's study the Bible together. He's in jail. He's in prison. He's not in there Go well, I'm fighting for my own rights. No, 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 no. I'm sharing the gospel. If we would get that as a church, everything would be different. I'm telling you, I, I know that, that I don't have the authority that so many other pastors have. I know that I don't have the years of experience that so many other people have, but I am telling you, I am 100% convinced if you would stop thinking the way that you do, not just, not just you, everyone who's listening, the whole world as a whole, and if we would actually live and know and practice the gospel and worship Jesus Christ, the world, not just our country, would be everything you want it to be. When At what, what point are you going to realize, am I going to realize, the way in which we've been doing things doesn't work? What's the saying? It's not totally true. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expect a different result. It's insanity. You're all nuts. I'm nuts. The moment that I think, it, that, that if I keep doing the thing the culture tells me to do, you have to be, listen, church, you have to be in culture, and you have to share the love of God in culture. You do. You do. You have to be in culture, but at the same time, there has to be something anti-cultural about you. You can't, you gotta, listen. We're living in a day and age, and it's, it's kind of true. It breaks my heart, but it's kind of true. Where non-Christians are known as being more loving and accepting than Christians. That should break your heart. And I'm telling you as a pastor and a leader, it's kind of true. It's not totally true, but it's kind of true. And the world is looking and watching and saying, why aren't you willing to serve? Why aren't you willing to help individuals? Why aren't you standing up for, for the person who has who, who come to this country illegally? Why can't we love that person? Well, no, you've got to come in right. You've got to come in. I'm getting involved in all kinds of political things, but that's, that's the problem is you've made them political things, not gospel things. It has to transcend. The gospel has to transcend. Even, even in, 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 in all kinds of other side eddy issues about theology and doctrine, where we want to make some of those things and divide over them. We don't need to divide over them. Because at the end of the day, it's about faith in Jesus, yeah? And you know I love doctrine. You know I love the Bible. But the moment people know you for your doctrine and not for your love of Jesus, that's a problem. See, in the, the wilderness here, God is trying to deepen their love for Jesus. Church, has your love for Jesus grown in the last three months? I mean, really, just take a moment to ask. Has your affection increased? Or are or you just, you're just frustrated? And you're just angry? You'll never change the world with that. I mean, when Martin Luther stood up in regards to Black Lives, Matter, Black Lives Matter, what did he say? I have a dream. He was known for the positiveness. I have a dream. What if? We have a dream, don't we? We have a vision, don't we? A new heaven and a new earth. And yet they're complaining. And I, I just have to take a moment to tell you the Bible is really actually pretty pretty forthright and pretty stern about the severity of what it means to be grumbling, complaining, that it is a true, legitimate sin against God himself. 1 Corinthians 10 actually says this. Listen, listen to what this says in 1 Corinthians, the New Testament. The people were brought into the wilderness, and God was not pleased, for the people were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things in the wilderness, he says, took place as examples for us. This is, this is uh, the Bible telling us that this passage that we've read out of 16 and 17, it was written for our benefit. That we would do well to read it and see that the example set before us, that we may not, it goes on to say, to desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test if some of them did. And then it goes on in verse 10, and listen to what it says, that we would not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyers. And then Philippians says it a little more directly, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Do how many things of not, whoa. What's all? It's like all. It's like everything. Clip your toenails without grumbling. Now, we're thinking about opening up Children's Church, and so many of your kids have been so awesome in this season to sit in I was talking to my wife after the first service, and she said, you know, I'd asked her how it went. She sat in the back, and I said, how'd it go for you? She said, you know, uh, it was really frustrating the whole time you preached on grumbling and complaining, and three of our kids the entire time grumbled and complained. You know, kids just show us the true nature of what's inside every human being. I mean, it's easy to look at a young kid and go, yeah, they're not mature enough. No, 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 no. They're doing what you're doing. You've just become more refined at it. You just know how to make it look a little more socially acceptable. But we're all guilty of those things. And then God's response, just as he provided sweet water, he provides sweet bread. Manna, it literally falls from heaven. They have to pick it up every morning. They can't, they can't store it because if they store it, it's going to go bad. It's actually in the Psalms, this manna is actually called angel's bread because it comes from heaven. God is providing for them miraculously. He's giving them full satisfaction in food, but he's still testing them, it says. Why is he testing them? Now, remember the history of everything that's happened here. How did, how did the Hebrews end up in Egypt? A guy by the name of Joseph in slavery. Joseph rises out of slavery, ends up becoming a politician, basically the number two guy in all of Egypt. He interprets a dream because he realized what's going to happen in Egypt is a seven-year famine. But before the seven-year famine, seven years of plenty. So what he says is what we have to do, Joseph says, we've got to store up seven years worth of grain and food. If you go to Egypt today, you will literally see silos that are built into the ground that are about a couple hundred feet deep that were designed most likely by Joseph and the other Egyptians to store seven years of plenty. In fact, Egypt became one of the superpowers in the world because they stored the food. Everyone was in a famine. They sold the food to everyone else, and they, the result was the plethora of gold they had. That's why they were burying their kings in big helmets made of gold. So their whole agricultural system for 400 years to this moment, for 400 years, was to go into the fields every year because the Nile would flood, and the, the, the trees would grow, the grain would grow, and then just one time a year. And so every year, they'd have to go out and store at least seven years' worth of food, and they would just store it up, store it up, pack it in, store it up, pack it in, store it up, pack it in. They had, they had like, the world's best food pantry system ever. Now they're in the wilderness. There's no food pantries. And God says you can't store anything. In fact, if you try to store it, it's gonna go rotten. You know what God's saying? He's saying... To Israel, and he's saying to you, and he's saying to me, will you still follow me if my ways are different than your ways? What if God's doing something new and something fresh and totally different? Will you still follow him? Even though he's going to do it differently than the way that you're going to do it. I mean, let's be honest. Does God ever do anything the way that you want him to do it? And here, we will just push back on that. If God's doing things the way that you always want him to do things, you probably aren't in a relationship with God. You probably have set up your own God. But God always, in faith, because we're to live by faith, will lead us down a path that is unfamiliar, so we'll live by faith. And the church is in that place today. I have no idea what the church is going to look like in the next few years, and it very well could lead to persecution. And I've had to seriously ask the question, and I hope you have too, am I willing To go to prison, if not die, for my faith and my love for Jesus Christ. Standing before you, I can say yes. I hope if there's a gun in my face and handcuffs around my hands that I'll say the same thing at that time. And then, test number three, there's no water. Chapter 17, the people are about to stone him and the leaders. They don't agree with how they're leading. They don't like it even though God has continued to provide, even though it's clear that God is the leader, that God has established the way in which they're supposed to live. So God tells Moses, take the same staff that you have. It's the only thing you have. Take that staff, strike the rock, and water will gush from the rock, and they'll have water. You know why that's beautiful? Because God, God had every right to take Moses' staff, if not something from heaven, and to strike his people. See, the question that we shouldn't ask is, is Why does not everyone save? The, the real question we should ask is, why does God save anybody? Because we're all just a, a grumbling group of people, are we not? We, we really don't worship God the way that we should, and, and yet God, what he does in the gospel is he strikes the rock instead of striking the people to provide water, which brings us full forward into the gospel of Jesus Christ where God saw it to be good to strike his son rather than to strike you and for blood and water to flow from Jesus Christ, that life would flow from Christ into your life. God's still in the business of responding to his people with grace to strike the rock rather than striking us. You know, if you get that, you can't help but sing, even if you don't have a good voice. And you can't help to cry out to God, and say, Lord, help me, thank you so much that you 've given me that which i don 't deserve as we close, I want you to to leave here hopefully with some encouragement, and that encouragement is that that you have the opportunity as a Christian to really shine bright. Maybe when you leave here, take time as I mentioned the rock we did a, a we did an Easter series and one of the paintings for the Easter series is a huge, massive rock that it's breaking into pieces, and the cross is coming out of the rock, and there's water below it, and there's a man with his arms open receiving it. And that is based off of this scripture as well as into Easter when Jesus died on the cross for us, and it's hanging outside in our foyer up high. Not everyone sees it. If you're new and you haven't been here before, maybe you haven't recognized it, but we've put it up as a memorial for one of our you know great Easter stories. But just take a look and be thankful for the fact that in your complaining and grumbling that God hasn't saw fit to destroy you. And then take all of that and build it up into a big ball of gratitude and leave here and say, God, you know what? All of these things that I'm dealing with, they're minor inconveniences. This is a minor inconvenience. So what if you have to wear a mask at Costco? I mean, seriously, I know some of you are going to push back on that. Who cares if you have to wear a mask and and a mountain Hardware? You're not being murdered for your faith. Perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. You go, well, what, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not an expert in the CDC. I'm not an expert in coronavirus. I'm not a police officer. I'm not an expert in law. You know what I want to be an expert in? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that if... We will do as Jesus did. I believe our culture will be radically different. But I also think we're kind of far from that. I think you and I, myself included, have to do some real work at looking in the mirror and saying, God, where am I with you? Have I really made you Lord? This is an opportunity for us to humble ourselves before him and truly make him our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us, forgive me, for where I grumble and complain. Lord, I truly want to be filled with gratitude and thankfulness for you, for the way that you provide for us. Even in this season, Lord, there's been moments where I worried if you were going to provide for your church and your people and our staff, and yet you've continued to allow manna and water to flow into us, Lord, and care for us. So forgive me for doubting that you are a God of provision, that you are faithful when we are faithless. And may all of us in the room and those who are watching online and those who will watch later, those who tune in to this message for whatever reason, may they come to a place where they're willing to confess their insecurities and their insignificance and, and their sin before you, Lord, that they would then be filled with sweet, sweet gratitude, honey from heaven. We trust you for that work, knowing it's not possible without man's assistance, or rather, Lord, without your assistance. We cannot do it alone. May we kneel before you now, and may we sing of your sweetness in Jesus' name, Amen. Church, we stand with us and a. We we'll close in this, this final thought, and you know, try um, our leaders and everything. Try to.